The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. What learning can I get from deep anxiety? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Every Day Better. Join me every single week to explore the stories and ideas that show us how we can live even better every day with people who are changing the world. Today, I got to sit down with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. She's a neuroscientist and the newly appointed dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at NYU. Now, the first thing that made me want to talk to her is her energy. She has that thing that makes you want to listen and engage. I'm like, I will have whatever she's having. Now, on the practical side, though, Wendy is super interesting to me because she recently came out with a book called Good Anxiety. She studies how we can treat everyday anxieties as a gift and use them. Now, if you know me, you know I talk about anxiety often on this show because I've experienced it myself for many years. But for too many of those years, I didn't know what it was. So I couldn't name it, which meant I couldn't do much to work with it. I thought I was just going crazy, which it turns out I wasn't, and that finding out what this thing was called and how to manage and heal it was a total lifesaver. Chances are you've experienced some everyday anxiety yourself at some point, too. That being said, her focus is not on the diagnosis of generalized anxiety. She's not working with patients on this, but on the regular everyday anxieties that so many of us feel. They're common and they're normal. She actually stumbled into this because she noticed more and more of her students at NYU seemingly experiencing this even before the pandemic. And I can only imagine that the pandemic has heightened our experiences of anxiety. So in 2021, she came out with a book called Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. And that's what we're doing today. We're talking about how to use our everyday anxieties, how to frame them as a gift, and what this evolutionary response is actually showing us that can be more empowering than disempowering. So here's Wendy. The thing that's so exciting to me is how my research, particularly the books that I've written, the first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, about the effects of physical movement on your brain, on your emotional life, and good anxiety, even more relevant today than it was when I wrote it. And when I was researching it, which was a couple of years before the pandemic started, the reason I wrote that book was because I noticed an increase in anxiety levels in my NYU students, not just them, everybody. And if I was being honest, my own anxiety levels of my friends and colleagues were going up. And it was noticeable because we had this event of the pandemic. You often forget that even before the pandemic started, we had political issues. The global warming issue was still really scary. The the social issues had been starting and, and rolling along for a long time. And I knew I wanted to explore myself and use the neuroscience that I have been studying to try and address this problem. It's exciting that I I could apply both of these things in a whole new way 
and they're so needed and they're so valuable. I love that. And when you say anxiety levels, you're differentiating that from like a generalized anxiety diagnosis. Yeah, got it. Exactly. You, you put your finger on it because that's what I think sets this book apart. I am not an MD. I do not treat patients with generalized anxiety disorders. Anxiety first is a normal human emotion. Everybody has it. You cannot get rid of your anxiety, even though many people want to, but it exists on a hugely wide spectrum. And at the very top is generalized anxiety disorder. This is the level where you need to see a medical professional. My book addresses what I like to call everyday anxiety. It is the wide range, and I would venture to say that maybe 80, 85% of the population suffers regularly from everyday anxiety that is annoying or intrusive in their life. That does not mean they have generalized anxiety disorder, but all of us have a heightened level of anxiety because of the world that we live in. So I experience anxiety and I have for as long as I can remember. And like my mom, when I was little, used to call me her little worrier because I would always <laughs> worry about things. And as I go deeper into this work and research it, I go back and forth between needing to figure out what the source is and uh -huh. trying to just work with the actual experience itself in the moment yeah. so that I can. It's funny. I say heal anxiety. But to your point, it's like maybe we're just trying to soften the edges of it. Yes. Well, I would go further. I'm trying to do a jujitsu move on your anxiety <laughs> I love and make you realize, oh, my God, this is helpful. And actually, you remind me of a lawyer that I met at a birthday party one year that inspired one of my favorite gifts or superpowers that come from your everyday anxiety. And so this was early on in the book writing process. And I mentioned to her that I'm writing this book on anxiety. She said, oh, I am the high paid New York lawyer that I am because of my anxiety. And I said, oh, tell me your secret. And she said, I, just like you, I've always been a worry. I worry about everything. And I realized that worry makes me a better lawyer because what I do with my worry is I act on it. And so if I'm worried about this argument, you know, the other side is going to give, I go research. I make sure they can't use it. If I'm worried about what the judge might rule here. I make sure I know all the ins and outs. And so I realize that so many successful people do that already. I bet you already do that. Did you prepare uh, for this interview and worry about whether you're well-prepared? But because of that, mm -hmm. you became even more well-prepared. I call this the gift that comes from your anxiety, which is turning the what-if list into the to-do list. You are more prepared. That lawyer who actually I hired, she's now my lawyer, so it's working. It's it really works. working. She's a great lawyer. First of all, I would hazard a guess that almost everybody listening right now has experienced anxiety, experiences it on a regular basis. There's this spectrum that we're talking about, and you and I right now are talking about everyday anxiety, which you're saying is normal and common. Yes. And I sometimes, I, I first of all think that's really important to call mm -hmm. out because uh, it can feel isolated. Yes. And one of the like core pieces of compassion research that Kristen Neff has done is we have to look at the fact that we are we and our experiences are much more common than it feels in the moment. Yes, absolutely. Got it. And so let me say two things to that great observation. The first thing is that if you look at the emotion, the human emotion that everybody has of anxiety and look at it evolutionarily, it evolved not to annoy us. It evolved to protect us. 
And you can think about a woman 2.5 million years ago who's walking around trying to gather food and maybe she has a young child and that crack of a twig 2.5 million years ago, it releases anxiety. She feels anxiety. Oh my God, is that a tiger that's going to kill me and my child? All of these stress mechanisms, the fight or flight response that we all have and also work today, were working in her and it saved her. She either fought the lion or ran away from it and became safe. And we are all here today because she had the protective emotion of anxiety. And that's a great argument, but that doesn't help me today. No more lions and tigers and bears. Good anxiety is about showing people how to basically turn the volume down on our anxiety. Let's just all agree it's just too high for everybody. What happens when you turn that volume down? Ah, when you turn the volume down, you get back to the protective aspects of anxiety. And it's like, what the heck could that be? Because I'm not feeling protected at all. And it is because anxiety is there and it's released in you, not because you didn't finish watching that last Netflix series episode. No, you don't get anxious about that. You get anxious because, oh, maybe you didn't finish reading the last three chapters of whoever's book you're going to interview. Things that really matter, that makes you anxious. Why? Because you care about your job. You care about doing a good job. Is there anything bad about that? Absolutely not. In fact, when you look at it in that lens, your anxiety is showing you all the things in your life that you hold dear. So you worried about your family. You worry about money because that is really important to your livelihood. Nothing wrong with that. So you can say, okay, I understand that, but I still have high anxiety. We're going to talk about some of these tools to turn the anxiety down. But what if you do this? And I love this visualization. It comes from my dear friend, Desi Levinson, who said, what if you think of your anxiety as a little kid who's coming up and just pulling on your sleeve and saying, hey, interview coming up tomorrow. Did you finish the whole book? Hey, you have to talk to your grandparents and you had a fight with them. That's bad. But I love my grandparents. I don't want to have a stupid fight. And so, so it's understandable why these things are coming up, including people say, oh, well, what if you catastrophize about global warming? Well, yeah, I'm worried about global warming too. Yes, everybody should be worried. And there I would say, turn that what if list into a to-do list. Everybody has 10 more things that they could do to decrease their carbon footprint. And it's easier today to find what those 10 or 20 or 30 things are. Do something about it. Donate. Act on it. Because we know that will make you feel better. There are lots of approaches and science-based tools that you can use to not just decrease your anxiety, but use it to make your life better. So this is super pertinent to me, and it's something I've gone deep into because I have struggled with anxiety for so long, but I never had a name for it. And I can remember I played sports in high school. I mm. ran track and I remember this tight feeling in my chest and I didn't know what it was. And I told my parents, I was like, I think something's wrong with my heart. Right. And I'm a totally healthy kid. My family's very healthy. No history. And I went to Kaiser uh, in California and they had me on the treadmill and hooked me up to the EKG. And I left. And they said, she's fine. Yeah. 
I never figured it out until I was probably in my late 20s. So imagine it took me another 10 years to be someone who is experiencing anxiety on a regular basis with no name for it, which can be devastating. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I struggled with a lot, and honestly, I'm still sort of working through is this idea of what you just said, which is how we catastrophize or experience what they call an anxiety intrusive thoughts. And how that actually is just showing us or it is a map for us around what's important, which in the moment, an intrusive thought or a catastrophizing thought can feel overwhelming. And for those of you listening who don't know what those are, they're thoughts that that are like the what ifs, but blown up. Yeah. And it typically tends to be something that will heighten your anxiety. So can you talk a little bit about that experience of intrusive thoughts and what you found around tools to support us working through those? There are lots of tools uh, that come to mind. First tool is something that everybody can do immediately, which is simply take multiple deep breaths. It comes from science because what you are doing when you breathe consciously, very deeply in and out and consciously slow your breath down, you are activating what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the equal and opposite part of the nervous system to your fight or flight nervous system. What it does is in times of relaxation, when there's no threats around, it slows your heart rate down, it slows your respiration down. And what it evolved to do was actually shunt blood from your muscles towards your digestion and reproductive organs, because when you're relaxed is when you can have a big brunch and have sex. So this is a very old kind of system so when you breathe deeply, when people are telling you, go to that breath meditation class, that is a way to directly and consciously activate that de-stressing part of your nervous system. And everybody with anxiety out there should be saying, oh my God, I just got a tool to immediately calm myself down. And it does work. And so that's tool number one for catastrophication. Tool number two is movement. So I spent many years in my lab at New York University studying the effects of physical activity, movement on the brain. And one of the most easily observed and robust findings is that even after 10 minutes of walking, you can significantly decrease your feelings of anxiety and depression. Just walking outside for 10 minutes has been shown to significantly decrease those feelings. So does that include New York City? Yes, it does. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, don't walk in a scary part of town, but walk in a but walk. nice, yeah. Okay. Walk. We're a town of walkers here. We sure and, are. And it has this immediate effect. It's been shown in study after study. When I couldn't stand it at the office anymore, and it's like I thought I was gonna scream, I went outside and took a walk and I felt better. You know why? Because you activated your parasympathetic nervous system with your walk outside. The third tool is getting back to the thing that you said, which was you feel all alone in your worry, in your anxiety. And the fact is that most everybody has the same kinds of anxiety. So many people have the same anxiety. So we talked about the gift of that what if scenario that comes up with anxiety. I realized that I had a deep insight into social anxiety of asking questions. And so when I went into academia, I used that to my advantage because I knew there were 10 times more students that had questions than were brave enough to actually answer, to ask the question. And so I stayed late. I came early. I made sure that they were able to ask me in a less kind of public way. And it became part of my superpower of teaching. But 
the general rule is that everybody has that anxiety that you've had for a long time. And so a beautiful thing that you can do is turn that knowledge of what it looks like, what it feels like, what situations it comes up in to the outside and reach out to somebody else and not don't give them a million dollars. Just say, hey, are you okay? Can I give you a hand? Oh, do you have a question? And we know that that act of compassion actually releases dopamine in your brain. So I like to say, come for the empathy, but stay for the dopamine because it's a wonderful (laughs) way to use your own anxiety. So, okay, so these three, I think, are all really powerful. The first is multiple deep breaths. And you actually mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I asked you about this painting behind you that you stare at it and meditate in the mornings. So you use this tool. Yes. Yes. Got it. And any specific meditation? I'm just I'm curious personally about that. Yeah. Well, I do something called a T meditation, T-E-A. So I was taught this by a monk who has a T institute in Taiwan. And it is meditation over the brewing and drinking of tea. Not a tea bag tea, but real tea where you seep it in a teapot. And for some reason, I found this form of meditation after a long kind of attempt to meditate. And I tried everything, Deepak and Oprah and all the other guided meditations. And I would stick to it and then I would fall away. But then this monk taught me this tea meditation And what I found was that the ritual of the brewing and the drinking of tea kept me in the cycle for a long time. And I happen to love Mm. tea. So just Mm -hmm. choose the tea that you love. And so I I do tea meditation every morning and I look at this, this picture and it's a wonderful way to start my day. We're taking a quick break. When we get back, more from Dr. Suzuki on what self-experimentation you can do to work with your anxious experiences, not against them. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. 
I love the point about not everything works for everyone because I talk to so many people who say either I'm not a meditator or I'd love to meditate, but I've been there too. I've been the yo-yo. I've been the try it all. Nothing works. And then all of a sudden you find some random thing that you're like, this is odd, but it works. And so you do it. But it's not one size fits all. It's a practice of kind of trial and error and experimenting with it. Exactly. I talked a lot in my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, about the concept of uh, self-experimentation. I'm a scientist and I, I was taught how to experiment on others, but I found myself experimenting on myself. And it's a great skill to have when you are in search of something like a great workout. I don't like all workouts, but I, I absolutely know now the workouts that I love and I know the motivators that get me to do it harder or more or longer. And so those are things that everybody can explore with a little bit of curiosity. Well, and that's what I love about you and your work is the self-experimentation, because it feels so different to hear someone say something because they've tried it Mm -hmm. versus saying something that they've never tried. And you're kind of like, it doesn't quite integrate in the same way where you're like, (laughs) oh, I feel that you've tried this and now I trust you more and I want to go try it myself. Yeah. Um, You mentioned movement, which ties me back to some of the reading I've been doing about anxiety. And this may be closer to a generalized anxiety diagnosis, but it's the idea that oftentimes when we're feeling anxious, we have a series of thoughts, right? And those thoughts are worry or catastrophe, whatever it is. And we try to fight the thoughts on their own turf. I've read a couple of times now, it's called Anxiety Rx. It's by Dr. Dr. Russell Kennedy. It's about the idea that anxiety is actually also alarm in the body. So that tightness in the chest that I mentioned I was feeling before makes a lot more sense to me now because I know, oh, it's not, anxiety isn't just a brain thing. It's also a body thing. Yes. So the movement piece you mentioned feels like it coincides with all that, does it? Absolutely. So there is a, a strong connection between the brain and the body. And the way I explored it in my own kind of personal journey is finding the power of exercise. And I was a workaholic, basically. But all I did was go to the lab, tried desperately to get tenure at New York University and eat takeout food. And that wasn't good for my health. It wasn't good for my mental health. And I just lost all muscle mass. And I was motivated to try and get back to the gym when I went on a river rafting trip. And I was inspired by all the triathletes that were on this trip. And I'm like, oh, my God, it was just like, I can't feel like this anymore. I want to feel like they look right. I don't have to be a triathlete, but I want to feel stronger. So I went to the gym because of that. And boy, I found that it changed everything. It changed my mood. I was happier. I felt better. I felt energized. And my writing sessions for all the grants that I have to write were going better. And this led to an understanding and an exploration about all the ways that physical activity, moving your body out in the periphery, actually has effects on two of the most important and fascinating parts of your brain, your hippocampus, important for memory, critical for creating and writing, and your prefrontal cortex, important for focused attention, critical for writing. And that is what pulled me in so deeply that I switched my research area from memory, which I've always been interested in, to literally the fix the effects of movement on various brain functions. Did it take some time? I think everybody wants a quick fix, but I want to know, like, how long did this take you for you to start to see these shifts happen after you got this inspirational moment with these rafters? The day after I got back from that trip, I walked to the nearest gym that I could walk to from my house. I signed up and it was a year and a half later 
of going to classes and sweating. Oh, God, I can't. I'm a terrible hip hop dancer. I'm never going to hip hop <laughs> class again, but maybe I'll go to another class. And I still remember the day when I walked into the different dance class and the guy that I always stood next to said, oh, my God, you look so good. Did you lose weight? And I said, oh, yes, I did. And, and I wasn't trying to lose weight, but I clearly it built up, but it took a year and a half. But I stuck with it and because I noted how much better I felt. I love this point because I think so much of us want the fastest possible thing to happen for us. And so I hypothesize that that's part of the reason we don't get started is because we know deep down it's not going to happen right away. And we're asking ourselves, can I put up with enough of the discomfort to get what's on the other side and then keep it going after I actually do it? What do you say to those people who are just going, God, a year and a half, that feels way too long. I just yeah. won't do it. Okay. So here's what I say. That exercise is very valuable and there's things that motivate me every day to keep exercising. So here's what everybody needs to know about what happens to your brain when you move your body, including that 10 minutes of walking that I talked about. Every time you move your body, you are releasing a whole bunch of neurochemicals in your brain, including those neurochemicals that are making you feel better, that are decreasing your anxiety and depression. And they include dopamine, serotonin, and noradrenaline, and endorphins, and growth factors. And so I like to call it a neurochemical bubble bath for your brain. And what does that do? It does three things immediately, immediately, not a year and a half later. One, it improves your mood. Number two, it has an immediate effect, not a long lasting, but it can last for several hours. It improves your ability to focus your attention. And third, the immediate thing that happens after every single workout is your reaction time, your motor reaction time gets better. So that means that if your Starbucks coffee drops, you know, you catch it before it falls. That is what I mean by motor improvement. But the focus and the mood are huge. I tell my students, you want to get ready for a hard lecture class coming up, do a couple laps around Winchester Square Park that you're going to feel better. You're going to have focused attention for that 90-minute lecture, and you are going to learn and retain your information better. So you get immediate benefits from every single workout that you have. And for those people who are the workaholics, do you say the same thing to them when they're saying, I just don't have time to do this. I have to work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to imagine. I don't know whether I would have listened to myself at that point in time, but the truth is that if you give time to this activity of working out, you gain time in your cognitive ability. Your mood is better. Your focus is better. You basically get more bang for your buck when you do go to work. When you give your brain this neurochemical bubble bath that I was talking about, it has beneficial effects. And we haven't even talked about the long-term benefits, which is Regular bubble baths for your brain that you get every time you work out is increasing growth factors are increasing in your brain. It turns out that those growth factors go into and work on the hippocampus critical for long-term memory. And what does it do there? It actually grows new brain cells. This is one of only two brain areas in the human brain where brand new brain cells can be born in adulthood. And so this is my memory area. This is also the area most susceptible to aging and neurodegenerative disease states. And so on the long term, you get a bigger, fatter, fluffier hippocampus. 
your memory gets better. There's evidence the hippocampus is involved in imagination too, that is putting together all the things in your memory together in new and innovative ways. Do I want a better imagination and a better memory? Yeah. So this one is meaningful to me. I recently went out of town and I used to go for runs all the time and I stopped because I got hurt. And then more recently I had another injury and I've noticed my mood has gotten less and less exciting. I know how I'm supposed to be and this isn't quite it. But, you know, I went out of town and I left for 10 days. And during that 10 days, everything we did was active. We were on the move within two hours. We were in a kayak after landing. So we were super active and something shook loose for me that all of a sudden I was like, I'm ready to start working out again. Mm. I've been someone who's always worked out. I'm ready to get exercise. I'm ready to just get back in the game. Can we engineer those moments where we all of a sudden flip the switch and go, I need to feel like that or I'm ready to do that again? Because I think a lot of times we get so stuck in our day-to-day grind that it's hard to remove ourselves from that repetition. Yeah, it is. And I think it is hard. I mean, I did not engineer my breakthrough. It happened and I noticed it and I was very grateful for it. But that's actually part of the motivation for writing these books. Those books are the product of those revelations that I had and realizing, oh, my God, I'm a scientist. I know all the science behind it and also just all of my explorations. I see the effects of of this knowledge. I've been getting more and more prescriptive and practical in my classes that I taught was a first year seminar class called How to Build a Big Fat Fluffy Brain. I taught them the neuroscience of exercise, of meditation of sleep, of connection. And then I said, okay, your turn. Design an experiment for yourself. Choose your favorite tool. Do a week of control, gathering data in however way you think it would be most helpful to you. And then change it for one week. This is your assignment. You must write up those results and tell me what happened and why it failed or why it was a wild success. And so that is how I've trying to get even more practical, going beyond just, here's the science, do with it what you might. Now it's okay. Do Do something, something. like change something in your life. Do it just for a week and see what the difference is. And then we're going to talk about it and we're going to share all the best successes or the almost successes that didn't work. It really gets the conversation going in a new way. I'm trying to do that with the rest of the world. I love that. Started with 18 students, but it was a good experiment. I love the idea of self-experimentation because it also sort of removes you from your own story, which we can get so caught in that we're like, I can't do that. And it's no, when you objectify it and say, let's see how Wendy does this. Let's see how Leah does this. It becomes Uh a little bit different. The last piece you mentioned is the question asking and the social anxiety experience. And your antidote to the social anxiety was to help others. Yeah. So is that really the way you'd frame it? Or what would you say that really caused that shift for you? That was a very meta-level observation. I I was convinced that anxiety could be helpful. It was a gift. And so when I wrote this book, Good Anxiety, at first it was going to be a, um, you know, a neuroscientist viewing anxiety. And here are my best tips. But Something happened in the middle of writing this book that made me change the way I wanted to approach anxiety. And it was very sad, but it's something that happens to most all of us. I lost my father. My father passed away. 
And then my younger brother passed away, both from a heart attack in the middle of writing a book on anxiety. And I had to stop writing the book. I couldn't write anymore. And I was in deep grief, as one is. And somehow in the middle of it, I wasn't even thinking about writing this book. I realized that one way to look at the, the deep grief and the waves of grief that were coming over me is that grief really represented the deep love that I had for my brother and my father. And if I didn't have that deep love, I, I wouldn't have this grief. So did I not want that love? Of course not. It comes together. And I thought if I could appreciate that learning that I got from deep grief, what learning can I get from deep anxiety? And that's when I started to get very curious. I got a second round of coming back to write Good Anxiety about the gifts that come from anxiety, because I had a lot of anxiety during that grief as well. And part of that anxiety is what was that little kid saying? You loved your dad. You love your brother. That's not revolutionary, but hits you in the face when something like this happens. So it really changed the way that I approached this book. It really did. And I, I come back to these emotions didn't evolve to annoy us, to bring us down. They evolved to protect us and in my case for grief, to remind us of these most important things in life. Who do you love? You love your family deeply. And, and this is part of what life is. So it's an unusual way to get back to anxiety. But that's what happened. That's incredible. And well, number one, I love it. You say it's like your grief is a love story. Like your anxiety is maybe also a love story in some way. It's showing you what you care about. Yeah. Like what you said before, it's showing yeah. you what matters because we don't have anxiety over things we don't typically care about. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I love that. And I love your what you're saying is use it. So if we were to design our one-week experiment from Dr. Suzuki so we can get beyond 18 people and hopefully to many more, <laughs> yes. what assignment would you give us? Ooh, okay. So I'm going to give several so you can pick. Great. So I would say if you are inclined to think, ooh, meditation, I've always wanted to try that. Maybe I'll give it another try. I would do something that is doable. It's like, I'm not going to send you off to meditate for three hours a day, right? I'm going to send you off to meditate for five, seven minutes before an activity that you do regularly that requires focus. Maybe it's your work, maybe writing your questions for your interviews. And this doesn't have to cost money. Go to YouTube, find a meditation, a short meditation that has over a million views and just give it a try. Don't like that first one, find another one with over a million views. Give it a try. Do it for five days, every day in a systematic way. And really try and note down how that shifts, you know, rate your working session after that on scale from one to five. One is terrible. Five is fantastic. How did that change? And the, the control experiment before you do that is just uh, figure out what that is and, and do it without the meditation. Live your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the second offering would be explore the power of that 10 minute walk. I challenge people to add 10 minutes of walking before they get into work every morning. Maybe just walk around the block once, find something that will take you 10 extra minutes, but do that before you get into the work and see how it affects your demeanor, your, how you're feeling at the beginning of each day. Again, the control is don't do it and just rate how you're feeling when you get into work without doing that. And the third is add in 
once a day, pick five friends that you can easily call, but maybe don't call all the time mm-hmm. and call them one a day and talk to them for at least five minutes. And ju- you can just say, I just wanted to hear your voice. That social connection, we haven't talked about that, but I talk about it in the book, so valuable, associated with longer lifespans. Why? Because it, it's also releasing dopamine. We are social beings. We are social brains. Um, one of the best talks, uh, I invited uh, this wonderful researcher, Robert Waldinger. He is the arbiter of the longest running study on happiness, started at Harvard. And he talks all about the wonderful results about how that social connection is so important for the quality of our lives today, the longevity of our lives. And he did something extraordinary at the end of his talk, which I loved. He said, OK, I told you how important this is. I want you all to pull out your phones. And I want you to text somebody that you haven't seen recently and just say, I was thinking about you. Let's get together soon. That's all you have to say. And of course, everybody did it. And so did I. And that, talk about a ripple effect. There were 200 people at that talk. How many things have been sparked because of that? I I could just tell you my person commented on it. The best thing that happened to her day is when I did that. And then a friend of mine who I didn't even know was involved, said somebody texted me and it turned out to be because of this. So you don't know where it it went, but that is the power of putting science into action. That's what I love. Okay, Dr. Suzuki, I'm going to have you complete these three statements for me. Better humans are. Connected. Better work is. Meaningful. And a better world has. Love. Oh, I loved how fast you responded to that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for all of this. For those of you listening, go get this book. Go watch a TED Talk. I've got pages of notes here. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was such a fun conversation. That was Dr. Wendy Suzuki, author of Good Anxiety and Dean of NYU's College of Arts and Sciences. To be really clear, this episode is not meant to diagnose or give you medical advice. It is meant to give some substantiated experiences and evidence around things that we can do to support everyday anxiety. So if you're feeling like you need to talk with someone about your anxious experiences, do it. I promise it will change your life. If this conversation has you wanting more tools to work through everyday anxiety, why not share it with someone else who might need to hear it too? And help other people like you who you don't know find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me what you loved about this episode or what you love about Everyday Better. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about how to live better every day. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gadron makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.